Hello, listeners. Welcome to Educational Landscapes, Lessons from Leaders. On today's episode, we're going to learn from Varun Fadke. Welcome to the show, Varun. Thanks, Ulemu. It's great to be here. I'm very excited and honored to be part of the group of people you've chatted with. Wonderful, wonderful. We look forward to learning from you. So to get us going, what is your educational leadership title or titles? Uh, great question. So I am fortunate to have a lot of uh, educational roles here at Emory involving work with a lot of different levels of learner. So in the medical school, I am the director of the microbiology thread in the preclinical phase of their curriculum. Then I'm the director of the internal medicine clerkship in the third year of their curriculum. And then in the GME space, I am the associate program director of the infectious diseases fellowship program. And then most recently, I became the assistant vice chair of education for clinical reasoning in the Department of Medicine. Congratulations. I love that it covers the whole spectrum, the continuum right there. Yeah, no, it's a lot of fun. Cool. So given the breadth of learners that you uh, deal with, what do you do in these roles? Great question. So I... Um... I think I do a lot of different things, uh, ranging all the way from direct hands-on teaching at the bedside or the classroom, and that can be a large group classroom like lectures or a small group classroom like workshops and small group activities. Um, but a lot of it, honestly, is curriculum development, thinking about what content needs to be delivered over a, a certain amount of time, what competencies do my learners need to develop as a result of experiencing the curriculum that I'm in charge of? Um, and then faculty development as well. I think the unifying thread of a lot of my clinical and educational activities is this clinical reasoning focus that I've developed over the last few years. And it's not a domain that many of us as faculty learned about explicitly in our training. And so developing faculty in that sort of knowledge base is a big part of what I do. I love it. So can you tell us a bit more about what drew you to clinical reasoning as the area of focus? Yeah, so I, you know, clinical reasoning has been an area of kind of inquiry for a long time, for decades, understanding how clinicians think. Uh, but it's only more recently become sort of uh, recognized as a competency that we can and should explicitly develop in learners. And I kind of came to it serendipitously because I didn't even know that I was teaching concepts that were aligned with current frameworks of clinical reasoning until I sort of... Uh, found them and saw, hey, I'm sort of structuring my lectures and my chalk talks exactly like what this domain is is all about. Maybe I should be even more intentional about following those frameworks and infusing them. And I think what I love most about it is that it is very intuitive. Uh, once you start to adopt the language, it is really how clinicians think all the time. We just are not really good at articulating it to each other. And therefore, it often feels like a black box for trainees. 
And so when you're able to shed light on it and you get to see that moment where trainees realize, oh yeah, I really should be organizing my thinking like this. It brings together all of the medical knowledge that they already possess and just mm -hmm. gives them a way of organizing it and retrieving it more effectively. I love that because I think it's so important to make things that are implicit, explicit, especially to junior learners who are like, I don't know what you just did. Absolutely. Yeah. Sorry, I got a pause. So as you think about the work that you do, you're dealing with faculty, you're dealing with learners, you know, teaching clinical reasoning. What skills do you use in your various roles? So I think what I've come to realize in having these roles is the most important thing in developing clinical reasoning skills and exploring other people's clinical reasoning is just being able to ask good questions. Mm. And I have really tried to be intentional about developing my question asking skills. It, it might seem really basic, but I think you know, in the microbiology thread or in the medicine clerkship or as a uh, clinical educator and kind of teacher on the wards with my fellows, a lot of the time we're not transmitting knowledge or our goal should not be to transmit knowledge because there's better resources than me to learn information and facts. And, and so what people really want is an organizing tool and you can actually talk people through the organization by just asking questions. But that means asking questions in a way that keeps the learning climate sort of uh, approachable for learners, that doesn't make learners feel sort of unsafe, uh, that allows them to share their uncertainty, um, that acknowledges that there were a lot of intermediate steps from where they were to where I am or where their other clinical teachers are. That, I think, recognition and appreciation is what has fed into my question asking ability and I think is one of the most important skills that I use in all of my sort of educational roles. That the art of questioning. So given, you know, you're, you're covering the continuum, I am very curious, what was your journey that led to these current roles? So I think like many of your previous guests, it was not linear and um, I honestly didn't even realize that I could pursue this passion for education when I began my medical training. I always enjoyed teaching, you know, all the way back to grade school. I did a lot of tutoring in undergrad and uh, was a TA for organic chemistry for two years. And actually, I should have realized, in, only in retrospect, I realized now that that experience was very formative because our organic chemistry professor had a completely non-lecture-based organic chemistry curriculum, and it was entirely small groups working through problems that he had created to incrementally teach sort of the knowledge and skills. And as a TA, it was very cool because you would just circulate among the groups and kind of see how learners were struggling and offer your wisdom. And uh, I didn't realize sort of the the innovativeness of that curriculum at the time, but in retrospect, it's like all I want to do now. But 
I so then I you know got to medical school and and residency and I think like many other people during those phases of my development I was very focused on okay what clinical specialty am I going to become you know an expert in and try to master and be passionate about um and you know enjoyed teaching enjoyed teaching learners that I had when I was on teams as a resident and as a fellow too and I think uh it wasn't until fellowship that my mentors during fellowship recognized my passion for teaching and and showed me paths that I could pursue to uh, apply that to larger groups of learners and really gave me opportunities to teach in a large group setting or a small group setting by inviting me to give you know lectures or workshops and so on and then I was lucky enough to be uh, brought on as faculty with uh, a couple of educational roles, um, including the associate program director role in the fellowship program, and then the director of the microbiology thread in the medical school that started just a few months after I began as a faculty member. And both of those roles were very formative for me in, in sort of opening my eyes to the bigger world of medical education and the kind of regulatory frameworks in which we function as educators. And, you know, then I got uh, the opportunity to become involved in the clerkship as associate clerkship director. I did that for four-ish years before I became the clerkship director. And uh, through all of those different things, I realized that they were kind of coalescing around clinical reasoning. And uh, I then was able to create an elective about clinical problem solving for medical students during COVID when the medical school had you know, asked people to create electives at the last minute because they were pulled off the wards. And I created this problem solving elective, which really crystallized my interest and uh, kind of forced me to become very facile with the literature because I was now teaching it. And I think that then naturally morphed into this role that I now have. That is amazing. And I love, as you said, that there was, in hindsight, a common thread throughout. What do you wish you knew before stepping into these roles? Um, I think, so one thing I just mentioned was this idea of uh, kind of the frameworks in which our educational institutions exist. And I don't think we as medical learners appreciate that and the sort of historical perspective about it, about why education is the way it is and what's been tried before um, and what assumptions have shaped what we do now and whether those assumptions are still correct. You know, I think we as medical students maybe have a vague understanding of what LCME is primarily because, you know, our stake in it is, you know, I want my institution to remain accredited <laughs> if I'm going to graduate from it. Um, and, and then as residents, I think we sort of interact with the ACGME to a greater degree because of, you know, milestones and things like that. Um, but I, I, would, I would venture to guess that most trainees don't have a, a more robust understanding of how that process works about accreditation and assessment and all the stakeholders involved. And I think just like clinicians benefit from understanding the healthcare system in which they function and 
its limitations and and potential. I think as an educator, uh, it would be, it, or it has been very helpful to sort of immerse myself in that and learn about it so that I know, okay, if I want to change this, here are all of the other things that that might impact and who I need to get on board in order to make those changes. We are not silos in these spaces. Correct. Yeah, I think because we often as educators get super passionate about like our little pet project. We're like, oh, I made this amazing curriculum or lecture or workshop. And it's great to deploy it and learners may really enjoy it, but to make it sustainable, to make it disseminatable, um, really understanding where it fits into the bigger scheme is very helpful. Indeed, indeed. So, you know, thinking about that clinical reasoning and then the other skills that you're using, um, what continuing professional development do you do to keep up with the needs of your roles? Yeah, I think that's really important. I So I, I do a lot of different things. I, you know, number one, attend a lot of conferences um, related to medical education and clinical reasoning um, to understand sort of what sort of curricula are out there, how are other people teaching the same material, um, how does it interface with other aspects of clinical medicine that, you know, I am not super familiar with, like medical decision making, high value care, things like that. Um, in the process of attending these meetings, either in person or virtually, I've developed kind of a network of colleagues, mentors across the country who I interact with, with some regularity to make sure that I, uh, you know, my ideas are being bounced off others who have expertise in the field. Um, so that's another way. Um, I think just keeping up with the literature in, in medical education, specifically as it relates to clinical reasoning is, has been very helpful for me, similar to, you know, what we do for our clinical practice and um, seeing how, uh, as one of my mentors uh, says, uh, the, the basic science of reasoning, you know, the cognitive psychology studies that go into dissecting people's thought processes to the uh, kind of implementation science of clinical reasoning, which is how do you how do you incorporate it into a curriculum in a way that uh, is uh, meaningful and that you can measure its impact. Uh, so that's another way. So conferences, mentorship, networking, literature. Um, I think those are the main ways that I've sort of tried to keep my myself and the content that I create uh, current. Nice. Any any conferences that you would suggest others uh, attend that you've been to? Yeah. So if you're if people are interested in clinical reasoning specifically, I think there's a lot of different places to go. So uh, there's a conference uh, called um, the society, or there's a society called the Society to Improve Diagnosis in Medicine, or SIDM. Uh, they have an annual conference uh, which is named just SIDM. Um, and uh, I haven't actually been able to go in person because it often overlaps immediately with our national infectious diseases meeting. Uh, but I have gone virtually, uh, thankfully, because of because of COVID, they've kind of made it a more hybrid type meeting. Um, it's a small meeting, but I think the people who go are sort of thought leaders in the intersection of clinical medicine, diagnostic error, clinical reasoning, education. A lot of my mentors and, and so on that I described attend that meeting. 
I learn a lot from the posters and workshops that are presented there. So that's a fantastic meeting. Um, I think a lot of clinical reasoning education gets presented at sort of more general educational type conferences. So like uh, AAIM, the Alliance for Academic Internal Medicine, um, has a lot of content related to clinical reasoning. Um, and then other educational conferences too, like AAMC and so on. So, which I haven't yet attended, but uh, I think those are, I think, high yield uh, uh, conferences to attend to kind of expand your worldview. Thank you. Thank you. So what other advice would you give to someone interested in doing the same type of leadership roles that you have? Um, so I think it's a good question. Um, I think it, it, it really depends on, I guess, which of my leadership roles I think about to answer that question. So, you know, I think it's probably easier for me to answer that question when it comes to some of the leadership roles that are more traditional, like the clerkship director role or the microbiology thread director role, uh, the, the associate program director role. Um, I'll, 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 and so I'll touch on those and then I'll kind of get back to the assistant, assistant vice chair role because that's a relatively unique role, I think, in our institution and, and among other institutions around the country. Uh, so I wanted to sort of reflect on that a little bit more separately. But with regards to the other roles, which are more traditional, I think um, things that are helpful are, number one, immersing yourself in the literature about those roles. Um, I think many of us, when we uh, come to like an educational activity, whether that's as something as small as a, in a single lecture or workshop or small group activity, all the way to an entire curriculum or role a lot has been done and studied and tried already. And it is vital to sort of recognize that and understand that so that you inform all of your educational work with evidence, just like we do in clinical practice. Um, there's a lot of uh, educational bodies that exist that have published curricula and guidance about assessment and things like that, that are immediately applicable to a curriculum. So uh, sometimes it might feel like you're applying uh, your efforts kind of in a silo, as you said, um, but recognizing that there's a larger network of people out there who have already created material that you can you can just adapt to your setting. Um, networking, I think, is super important. Uh, we often remain very institution-focused in medical education and think, okay, well, this is the way it's been done here. This is the way that it's going to keep being done. This is the way that I'm going to keep doing it. Uh, and it's not until you talk to a clerkship director or a program director at another institution when you realize, oh my gosh, like there's a totally different way of doing it that is also really effective. Mm -hmm. And I could try that here. So I think those are basic pearls that I have come to recognize over the last few years in these more traditional roles. Um, for the assistant vice chair role, uh, so I mentioned that it's a unique role, and I, I think there's probably only a handful of analogous roles around the country, uh, and, I, and I think that's because clinical reasoning has only more recently become recognized as a competency that we need to intentionally develop. Um, and so, you know, to my knowledge, there's only 
you know, two or three other people around the country who have a similar sort of GME focused role on clinical reasoning. There are clinical reasoning roles in UME for sure at a variety of institutions, including our own, Mm -hmm. uh, because I think it is more straightforward to embed clinical reasoning education into a undergraduate medical education curriculum. So, you know, because my role was unique or is unique and was new, like it's newly created, no one had this role before me, that allowed me a a lot of freedom to essentially define what I was going to do in that role. And um, I think that has pros and cons. Uh, so, you know, advice to people more generally when you're creating a new role and and then filling it to yourself is uh, deciding for yourself what your metrics are going to be, because um, that's going to allow you to show the value of your role to the people who created it for you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to allow you to it's going to narrow the scope of your work and allow you to remain focused on you know a certain limited number of tasks, because when you have no clear defined role. That means many people are going to think that you're tasked with helping them, which may or may not be true, um, even if it's exciting for you. Um, So uh, I think those are two immediate pieces of advice I would give, defining metrics for yourself and then uh, kind of narrowing your scope. Um, For the people who are interested in clinical reasoning specifically and want sort of more leadership roles in it, I think uh, faculty development is key and and that can be personal development. So uh, immersing yourself in the world of podcasts and literature and conferences, as I mentioned about clinical reasoning, there's a whole language of clinical reasoning that you just need to know to understand sort of what's happening. And it's not until you have that fluency that you can start to build credibility and then Uh, take on a position like mine, where you can then define curricula for others, you can define assessment tools that are based on evidence and so on. Thank you. I I really appreciate um, you highlighting the things that you need to think about when you step into a new role, because there is a lot of excitement. (laughs) But when something is new, that that scope creep is really quick. So um, I love, as you said, thinking about metrics, because I don't think a lot of people think about that when they take on roles. Like if you ask probably a clerkship director, what are the metrics that are used in order to tell you that you're doing well? They'll probably sit there and go, oh, that's a nice question. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, honestly, I wasn't, I wasn't even fully aware when I stepped into the role as associate clerkship director or clerkship director the metrics that are being used to measure us as mm-hmm. as directors from the medical school, you know, and I, yeah. it was only until I started receiving information like, oh, you, you know, there are these surveys that students complete at the end of every graduating year. Mm-hmm. Um, there are surveys that they're completing regularly about the faculty that they encounter on the clerkship. Okay. Um, there's a whole committee that reviews your clerkship at the end of every couple of years that you report to. When I became aware of those things, I realized, oh, okay, there is a there is a s- structure in which I function, and I need to be cognizant of that before I start to make changes and so on. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So, how do you support or expand education in your profession or through your roles? 
It's a great question. I think two ways. So one I've kind of alluded to previously, which is faculty development. So I spend a lot of time thinking about how to uh, transmit my clinical reasoning sort of uh, expertise, passion to others, because other a lot of other people have it, and they just don't have the language to describe it. Uh, I think anyone who is passionate about clinical medicine and making diagnoses and and making them efficiently uh, would love to be able to say, here is what I do differently than others that makes me more efficient or more accurate. Here are the skills that I'm, or skills or activities that I engage in that I, that make me uh, sort of stay current and stimulated. Um, and they just don't have the language. And so, uh, you know, creating workshops for the institution, you know, like there's a feed conference, um, um, there's medical education day, there are uh, noon sessions, educational sessions for various divisions within the Department of Medicine that I have participated in. Uh, there's the core faculty for the internal medicine residency program. I think all of those are venues that I have explored to try to convey this passion for reasoning and uh, develop that same skill level in others. So faculty development is number one. I think number two is mentorship, um, which I think is one of the most enjoyable parts of my roles because a lot of my role is not direct teaching anymore, right? Like as a program director, I'm not running the curriculum for our fellows. Uh, as a clerkship director, I'm not even necessarily the one doing any direct teaching in the clerkship anymore. Um, but the role that I do play for the learners in all those settings is a mentor and a sponsor. And you know, learners coming to me and the other leaders of the team coming to us with anxieties or queries about you know career development, um, anxieties about their clinical skills. Um, that interaction, that relationship is uh, really a, a big part of uh, my the joy of my of my work. And uh, I think one way that I try to transmit my values in education to the next generation um, so that they can see how I got to where I am and how I can pay it forward. And hopefully they do the same for their trainees in the future. So I think I think mentorship is another uh, very core aspect of my work as an educator that I that I think helps me um, further my educational mission. Wonderful. And I'm always curious when, you know, knowing how important mentoring is, when it comes to doing that, did you do any like professional development to prepare yourself to be a mentor or was it one of those, I'm going to just kind of wing it and learn as I go? That's a fantastic question. And uh, I wish one that was uh, asked of all graduates of <laughs> medical training who intend to remain involved in medical education. Uh, so I have not honestly engaged in any formal professional development about mentorship. Have I attended workshops at national meetings? Absolutely. Have I tried to engage with literature about mentorship? Absolutely. 
Have I tried to extract wisdom in a very explicit way from my own mentors? Absolutely. But, you know, does that necessarily mean I've, you know, gone through a mentor development program? No. Um, and uh, honestly, a lot of what uh, you come to realize as a mentee yourself is sometimes seeing things that your mentors do that you want to do differently. And, um, and so I, you know, I've tried to incorporate some of that into my own sort of role as a mentor to others. Uh, but I do think that there is room for me to continue to develop that skill, uh, especially, you know, since I'm now uh, in these sort of leadership roles where people are coming to me, including other faculty for development in that skill. Thank you. Thank you. I'm always curious with that um, because I, I know how important it is and yet it is, it's tricky to really build out a mentorship development program that meets everybody's needs. So. Absolutely. All right. So continuing on, what contributed to your biggest successes thus far or what has been one of your greatest successes thus far? So I'm, I'm going to blend those two questions. Uh, and uh, try to illustrate one of my successes uh, through the lens of the opportunity I was given to succeed. So I think the microbiology thread in the preclinical phase of the curriculum uh, was really a an amazing opportunity for me to explore my educational skills as uh, I came out of training. You know, before that, I had you know, given a handful of lectures to people about various topics in infectious diseases before, but I'd never really been tasked with designing a longitudinal curriculum. And so I was given that position pretty early on after graduating from fellowship, as I, as I mentioned before. And I think what was a really um, amazing opportunity was the person and the, the people who handed it down to me, um, separated themselves from the curriculum uh, and and therefore gave me a lot of leeway about how to change it. Uh, I think oftentimes in medical education, there is this, um, you know, natural challenge with completely handing something over, especially if you've been in charge of it for a long time and have seen a lot of changes happen that you're, you know, that you may be proud of. Um, but handing it over to someone else uh, and and seeing that that person might either undo what you did or or change what you did, um, I think it's only natural to want to have to continue to have a hand in in the in the development. But I the people who gave me that opportunity and responsibility were very intentional about separating themselves and saying, you know, Varun, this is yours now. Make it what you want it to be. We know that you have the ability to do so. We trust you to create uh, a robust curriculum that will uh, engage learners, you know, develop the competencies that are necessary and, uh, you know, be, a, be a, a resource for the medical school. And that freedom then translated into me being able to um, sort of revamp the curriculum significantly and 
and now I think it's uh, our medical schools or our medical students, um, you know, one of their favorite parts of the curriculum, even though many of them won't go into infectious disease, sadly. Um, I think many of them really enjoy that part of the of the preclinical curriculum. And I see that because I see them all come through the medicine clerkship in the third year and um, they uh, recognize me. And uh, and I think that's, uh, you know, I, I'm very proud of that because I didn't necessarily remember many of my preclinical teachers when I finished the preclinical phase of my curriculum. Right. Uh, so I consider that the microbiology thread to be a success. And I think a lot of it has to do with uh, being given that freedom and responsibility very early on. That's amazing. I, you know, and I really appreciate you bringing that up because it is one of the things that we, we say we're excited about change, but there is that, okay, can you let go so that the change can happen? And everyone's like, but that's my baby. I mean, yes. So. Yeah, no, I, I think it, I think it takes a lot of um, uh, trust mm -hmm. to hand over something like that to another person, um, especially if you've invested a lot of time and energy in it yourself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I feel like I'm going to struggle with that same dilemma whenever I hand over the microbiology curriculum too, but I hope that I can uh, do the same that you know, happen to me and allow the new person to uh, uh, enjoy that freedom. Yeah, that's wonderful. Wonderful. Oh, so recognizing you've had successes, and I'm sure you'll have many more. Um, what would you say are some of your biggest growth opportunities that are still in the works? Yeah, so I you know, I do a lot of different things as you have, uh, as I've talked about on this, uh, in this discussion with various levels of learner and have, you know, innovated in a lot of different spaces in the microbiology thread and the clerkship um, in this, you know, assistant vice chair role. I am not, uh, you know, I, it, full transparency, I am not I have not effectively figured out a way to measure and disseminate the work that I'm doing. Mm. And, you know, I suspect that this is a common thread among many educators. Um, uh, and um, I, I think it is important to uh, take what I have done and share it with others so that uh, my impact is, uh, you know, able to be felt outside of the institution. Mm -hmm. um, uh, to make myself visible as a resource for more junior faculty at other institutions who are looking for mentors. And that now network that I mentioned is so important um, because if I don't, you know, I think that's, that's like a, like an opportunity lost. I think I, uh, I think that is by far my, my biggest opportunity for growth and development as an educator is, is figuring out how to, and taking the initiative to uh, disseminate the work that I'm doing. Absolutely. I'm sure, I'm sure you will find ways, I'm sure. <laughs> um, as you like reflect on all the things that you've done thus far, what do you love most about your work and what you do? Um, so, you know, I, I, you know, this has come up several times during our conversation, you know, I think 
one of the reasons I love clinical reasoning so much is it it makes me a better clinician. And I, you know, my my two passions when I throughout my medical training, from when I was a student to a resident to a fellow, was was priority number one was always being clinically excellent um, to deliver the highest quality patient care. Mm-hmm. And you know, I always looked very sort of uh, with admiration at, you know, senior clinicians who were brilliant diagnosticians, uh, who who made really thoughtful decisions about patient care. And I thought to myself, you know, when am I going to be that person? Um, do I need to wait until I'm, you know, that that stage of my career before I can say, okay, I am now I can say I'm a, I'm a, I'm an excellent clinician. Mm-hmm. And I realized that, you know, you can, you can reach that level of excellence, or you can build a trajectory, I should say, to that level of excellence by being intentional about developing your clinical reasoning skills. And so in teaching about clinical reasoning, I have found that I not only love the interaction with learners, and the the light bulbs that that light up when I sort of walk them through a framework to organize the knowledge they already possess. Um, that then translates immediately into me becoming a better clinician about that problem, which then I feed back into curricula. So as one of my mentors uh, across the country in clinical reasoning told me, you know, he's a he's a expert clinician, uh, recognized globally for his diagnostic expertise. Um, and, you know, he's a full professor of medicine. And, you know, during one of our conversations, I asked him, you know, you're, a, you're so, you know, mature in your career, and you, you still do so much clinical work, um, which, you know, is not that common in people who are that high up in their in their career. And I asked him, you know, why do you do that? Um, and he said, well, because the the wards and the and the clinic and the ER are my laboratory. That's where I practice what I teach. That's where I learn what I'm going to teach about. And like that, that has really stuck with me because that like that close interaction between the practice of medicine and the teaching of reasoning for me is what what really drives my educational activities in every domain. And, um, and so building those thinking skills is, is, I I would say my, the philosophy that imbues everything I do. Ah, that is, that is wonderful. That is amazing. I love that close interaction, because I think sometimes people think, oh, there's that saying, those who can't teach, (laughs) right? And it's like, no, if you do, you learn really what you want to teach in order for people to correct that connection. Wonderful. So, you know, I recognize you are more than what you are at work. <laughs> so what are some things you do outside of work to help you maintain joy in life and practice? Yeah. And I think that's become more and more important. And uh, I think we've all become more and more aware of it over the last few years. So uh, for me, you know, number one, two, and three is spending time with my family, uh, my wife and my close to five-year-old son. Um, and so we, um, 
uh, I think do a lot of fun activities together, uh, hiking, biking, cooking, eating, um, playing with Legos, whatever it might be. I think that's really the, the, the centerpiece of my life outside of medicine. Um, but you know, when I do have some time for myself, I, you know, I enjoy podcasts, uh, non-medical podcasts. Um, I, you know, I listen to the moth, uh, and I love the stories. And I, I think about how the story storytelling as an art form and how that impacts me as a clinician and the way I tell stories to learners about how to learn from a case. Um, I love reading, you know, detective fiction is sort of my, my passion as you, as you might have guessed. And then, uh, lastly, as evidenced by the fact that I'm, that I, that I was baking a cake just prior to this podcast, I really enjoy cooking. So, uh, I have developed a passion for that over the last, uh, you know, 10 years or so since I was a, a fellow, um, and, uh, that's something I, I really love doing for my family. Uh, and you know, now all of the gifts that I've gotten over the last many years are related to cooking. So, um, that I def definitely think is a big part of my, my joy outside of, outside of my work. I love that. And everyone's like, since you enjoy cooking, we will happily eat. And so we will do whatever it takes to keep you feeding us. Exactly. <laughs> oh, I love that. Well, Thank you, Varun. Those were my core questions for you today. But before I let you go, are there any last words of advice for aspiring educators or education leaders that you'd like to share? Um, it's a great question. I, um, you know, I think, as I've mentioned a few times already, I mean, I think um, the most important lessons I've learned over the last few years and now in these roles is you're not alone. Find colleagues, mentors, sponsors, uh, collaborators to help you uh, further the impact of your ideas. Uh, I think we all operate sometimes in a silo in education, and that limits uh, the potential for what we can accomplish. Um, and, um, you know, I think your learners know more than you think they do. <laughs> Um, and your job is not to to make them know more. Your job is to help them think through what they already know. I love that. Love that. Wonderful words of wisdom to end on. So thank you again for your time, Varun. Absolutely. Thank you, Lemma.